Well, uh, a very warm welcome to you all here, to NSE, and in particular, something called the Institute of Public Affairs. And uh, I'm the director of it. My name appears there, Conor Geerty. And uh, I'm particularly delighted to have an event which initiates what will be a theme at the Institute of Public Affairs over the course of the next couple of years, which is the theme of religion in public discourse. We're very lucky at Tennessee to have a director, Professor Craig Calhoun, who, though deeply immersed in the social sciences, is very interested in religion and the impact of religion on culture. And he, together with the Institute of Public Affairs, will be engaging in a dialogue, a public discussion on religious themes through the next couple of years. And uh, he starts that on, if I may start with the plug, on the 1st of December with Charles Taylor, in discussion with Charles Taylor. Uh, a number of you will be thinking, why do we have a war criminal commencing a discussion on religion? Uh, but you will have got the wrong Charles Taylor. Others of you will be thinking, what about the distinguished musician? What does he know about religion? You will have also got the wrong Charles Taylor. Those of you who thought, oh, yes, the famous author of A Secular Age will have got the right Charles Taylor. So uh, we are pleased about that. There's a number of other strands and so on. And this, in a way, therefore, marks the beginning of a commitment uh, by LSE's IPA to things religious. And we're delighted that the chaplain, Father Jim Walters, has joined us as a senior fellow. But uh, the event is not uh, to celebrate IPA. It is, uh, and I'm sure that the other sponsors, and we'll be hearing from Ed at the end, Ed Kessler from Wolf will forgive me. It's partly to celebrate the 175th year of publication of a remarkable magazine. It's called The Tablet. There it is, The Tablet. It's a Catholic magazine, uh, but it's a Catholic magazine with a strong, independent uh, voice. And it might be thought by its... Is it possible to describe them as enemies, Paul? Those with strongly different views about what a Catholic is. Critics would regard it as a liberal magazine. We who like it, and I've been a trustee... Uh, for a number of years and also written for it. Think of it as a place where you can get the whole story, uh, uh, for example, on the family synod at the moment in Rome and uh, the Pope's visit to America, the Pope of the Americas, uh, but also is tremendous on culture, arts, books, and current affairs. A lovely read, and it's short enough for you to be able to finish the articles. That's a tremendous advantage. Uh, it does come every week. That's a bit trying. My perfect magazine is once every two years. I have the energy to read it. Uh, so this is partly to celebrate the tablet magazine. You can inspect it afterwards over drinks. Uh, I will be carrying it very prominently. The uh, location of the drinks will not be revealed until later, but they are very close indeed. Now, uh, we end this bit of the evening by 8 o'clock. Uh, and what we've decided to do for this fascinating theme, which carries with it a hashtag, hashtag LSE Believer, uh, some of you, I would imagine, would know what that means. Others of you will wonder what on earth it is. It's nothing to do with you if you don't know what it is. But if you want to comment on Twitter about it, that's what you push. Uh, and the purpose of this evening is to explore a question. Um, we were planning this, uh, Tina, Paul, and I, some time ago. And the question is a simple one. At the extent to which it's still the case, I think uh, we'll, all, we'll, all, we'll all accept that it has been the case. Is it still the case? And is it the same for all three? And what we thought we'd do is we'd bring together a community of uh, speakers who uh, come from different perspectives, 
but we're not tying them to present any kind of party line. First, we'll be frank here, in my immediate left, Cotter Boyce, screenwriter, novelist, wrote, among many other things, the Summer Olympics, uh, a fantastic achievement, the opening ceremony. And Frank, would it be fair to say, Frank, represents sort of the Catholic tradition. And then you can express your view on that in a minute. I may have said the wrong thing. And then Sugra, who is immediately to Frank's left, program manager at the Wolf Institute, as I said. We're very grateful to them for supporting this and more on them towards the end. Uh, the Center for Policy and Public Education. And Sugra's been uh, very interesting on and interested in faith, belief, communities, and studies of first-generation Muslim women in Britain, and men, indeed, in the United Kingdom. And then we have Ruth, uh, representing Jewish tradition from the University of Winchester, uh, very interested in the representations of British Jewishness in contemporary literature and culture. Uh, so we've asked the three of them to think and talk for 10 minutes or so on this question. And then, in a little twist, before you get your own say, but you will get your own say, the timing will be tight, we have three students. I'll introduce them when we get to them. Three students from LSE who've bravely volunteered to comment on what they've heard from the three traditions. So we have an echo from the student body of what we've heard, and they'll be addressing the question. So we have generational uh, universality. Uh, I'm going to be quite a tough taskmaster in regards to time, and not least because I do myself speak too much and leave no room for anybody else. Uh, but we're going to ask you, Frank, to begin at... 21 minutes, uh, 19 minutes to 7, on uh, the Catholic perspective, if that's what it is, the book and the believer, are Catholics, Jews, and Muslims still outsiders in British society? Frank. So, uh, hi, I am the right Frank Cottrell voice, um, not the wrong <laughs> one. <laughs> and um, the question is, are we still outsiders? And it would be completely absurd in a lot of ways to consider myself an outsider. I've written... Coronation Street, Doctor Who, I wrote the Olympics opening ceremony, I've written sequels to Titty Titty Bang Bang. Basically, I've been allowed to play with the crown jewels of British culture for all my career. Um, and I've, you know, a lot of people said I've had some influence on how you define British culture. Um, but I did grow up in a very, very separatist Catholic environment, uh, Catholic slash Irish. The definition of Catholicism was very much Irish. Our priests were Irish. There was, the social life was Irish. We learnt um, songs about St. Patrick. We never learnt songs about St. George or St. Andrew or St. David. Um, Cayleys were the kind of uh, how people socialised. And it was, a, it was a separatism that was... This is for my parents' generation, and I sort of saw the tail end of it because I grew up in my grandma... I lived in my grandma's house that this was a separatism that was, was created and was policed. Um, when, when Catholic children were evacuated during the war, the clergy went to great lengths to make sure that they were evacuated to Catholic areas. My father wasn't, and um, a, a vicar came to the house and uh, asked him just a very kind of ordinary question, asked him what his name was, and my dad stood up as a little boy and went, I am a Roman Catholic, and left the room. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, and so how, did, how has it happened that we've, I've kind of, like, that, that was sort of culturally the background and that we've kind of moved on from that? And I want to pick out one person. From long before I was born, there was a priest in Liverpool called Father Nugent. And I think what Father Nugent did is really salient to what's happening now. Father Nugent was born in the 1820s and in the 18, in, well, in 1849, the worst year of the Irish famine, uh, Liverpool was completely 
to use Cameronian language, swamped by refugees from the Irish famine. Well, not refugees from the Irish famine, because people who would have been refugees from the Irish famine just dropped dead. These were economic migrants, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. I, I haven't got the figures to hand, but more people from Ireland came into Liverpool in those few years than, what, than the population of Liverpool. Liverpool became effectively a refugee camp. And this terribly English uh, priest, Father Nugent, who trained at Ushaw, began a thing called the Catholic Institute. He began a, a rescue mission to, to particularly to boys. These, these were people, these were uh, migrants that had every reason to hate the host nation. The famine was a politically created thing, um, being created by the English. They, they'd come here for shelter. Um, so, the, so it was a very kind of hostile environment, and he began this school, the Catholic Institute, which is now St. Edward's College. And first of all, I just want to celebrate what an amazing response that is. But also, I've just read Paul Valerie's uh, piece about the history of Catholic identity in Britain, and you talk very specifically about Catholic schools and what they did, and faith schools and what faith schools do, and they allow a faith to detach itself from its cultural identity, which in my case would be an Irish cultural identity, and to be a living thing and to move people on. And you make the point, you made, Paul made the point that the say people like the 7-7 bombers did not go to faith schools and there's a sort of separation there between identity and a faith which is a living growing thing and which moves you on and I feel very privileged to have inherited to have had the opportunity to inherit what people like James Nugent did and create a kind of living intellectual tradition around my faith which allowed populations to move on from faith as a kind of cultural identity um, so for instance the school that my children went to St. Edward's College, a fantastically successful college school, which was a faith school, and did a fantastic, its mission was to create a Catholic middle class, and it did effectively create a middle class in a city that didn't really have um, a middle class that was drawn from an Irish Catholic background, it did create those people, it didn't, you could argue that it didn't do a great job of propagating the faith, it made a lot of uh, young Catholic uh, men into solicitors or teachers or doctors or whatever, it didn't proportionally it didn't make a lot of them into Catholics and um, one of the things that's sort of striking to me about being a Catholic in Britain is that the, the cultural reach of Catholicism massively outreaches the reality of being a Catholic and that's partly because of that the one big thing that you live with as, as a Catholic now is that you're living in the shadow of Vatican II there's this huge, huge rift in Catholic culture pre-Vatican II Catholic culture and post-Vatican II uh, Catholic culture, and that a lot of the people, a lot of the images of Catholicism are created by people who are very, very successful from those Catholic schools and went into the media and created these images, but they're images of nostalgia from their own childhood. So you're constantly having to kind of explain yourself in relation to a very outmoded view of Catholicism. Um, as someone who worked in the media, that was something that was hitting me all the time, that if I talked about Catholicism, people immediately saw it as a kind of dressy-up, sound of music, wimples, uh, smells, bells, things. And it was very difficult to explain that you had something, that what you had was a very different world view. So, for instance, working in film, film is an incredibly conservative, uh, conventional thing. And I've worked, I worked on a film called Millions, which is about a little boy who saw saints. And to me, this was a great solution. This is a great thing. This is a great ability to have. I, if I lose my car keys, I pray to St. Anthony. The idea that St. Anthony might be visible in the room, patting his pockets down, saying, where did you last have them, seemed like a really kind of good thing to me. But when you had meetings with 
your backers, they would say things like, Reese is just very interesting, and of course he has to move on from this position. How is he going to get closure on this, what is regarded as a, a psychosis? I also worked on a film about St. Paul for a while, where I had a meeting where somebody said to me, that conversion scene, that comes out of the blue, you really need to set that up. Which, like, the whole point of St. Paul is that it came, <laughs> literally comes out of the blue. And so it's quite sometimes difficult to explain that you, you live in a different reality, that you have a different set of values, um, without, that, without that being a kind of fortified, separate, visible identity marked by different customs or different clothing. Um, and therefore, one of the things... I mean, so if I say to people I'm a Catholic, people automatically assume I'm a lapsed Catholic. And it, I have to explain that now I turn up for practice every Sunday and, and more. And, and therefore you have to out yourself as a Catholic and people will try to stop you outing yourself as a Catholic. Um, I wrote an article for The Guardian recently about British values in which I said my values came from my parents, from punk rock and from the church. And they changed it to his values came from punk rock and from his parents and from Blue Peter which I don't think I even mentioned. It's like, thank you. Um, um, but I feel completely equal to kind of expressing the... And so you kind of have to out yourself. And for me, like, one of the big test moments was that I got asked to host the papal visit to Hyde Park, which was not the, the Pope that everybody loves now, but Pope Benedict, which people felt very ambiguous about. And in the build-up to that, I did feel the press was so, so negative about it that I did feel I was really kind of outing myself in a big way by turning up to this. And I did genuinely think there was only going to be me and Pope Benedict and a packet of hobnobs in Hyde Park because it was such a kind of negative thing. And then, of course, I got there... And this whole invisible London, this, you discover that the press is not the national conversation and that this amazingly diverse, diverse in terms of age, in race, in class, in ability, in si- every kind of you know, representative of every possibility of being a human was in that park. And that was kind of an amazing thing for me. And so you have to kind of out yourself um, and carry your values forward. Um, I want to talk about something... Completely different, like off, this is sort of coming from not within my Catholic tradition. Am I all right for time? You're all right for time. You have uh, two minutes and 15 seconds. Okay, two minutes and 15 seconds. I go on holiday a lot of times to a place in the Dumfries and Galloway called Ruthwell. And it's a tiny village. And the, the vicar of Ruthwell, back at the time that Father Nugent was starting this amazing mission, was this, was this kind of man that the Anglican, the, the, the Anglican, well, uh, Scottish Church of Scotland clergy sort of threw up, a gentleman amateur of amazing accomplishments. His name was Dr. Duncan, and he saw that his parishioners were poor, and he started a savings bank. It's the first savings bank in the world. It became the trustee's savings bank. An amazing thing. He also discovered one of the very first complete dinosaur skeletons, and he had an intellectual from Oxford, come up and talk to the workmen who'd found this skeleton about what it was and what it could be. And it's an amazing kind of tiny rural village renaissance figure. And one of the things he did in his archaeological prodding about was he found this thing, the, the, which would, with this beautiful cross that had been destroyed during the Reformation. It's called the Ruthwell Cross now. And it's one of the great masterpieces of Europe in the 8th century. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And everything in Dr. Duncan would have regarded that as idolatry, I think. He, um, he eventually left the Church of Scotland and became a, a member of one of the wee frees. He was quite an extreme Protestant. But he saw this thing and he knew it was a beautiful thing and he put it up in his church. And the, church, the, the cross 
is this marvellous thing, and it's got a poem on it. It's got a poem called The Dream of the Rude, which is one of the great Anglo-Saxon poems, and it's written not in English letters, but in runes. So it was written by somebody from a Viking background. Like, it's, it's across so many barriers from where he was, and he put it up. And I want to read you just a few lines from The Dream of the Rude. The Dream of the Rude is the cross speaking. And the cross says, I have on earth no noble fr- not many noble friends, but they have gone hence from earth joys and sought the king of glory. With the high father now they live in heaven and dwell in glory. And I wait for when the cross of God, which here on earth I formerly beheld, may fetch me from this transitory life and carry me to where there is great bliss and joy where the Lord's host is seated at the feast, and it shall set me where I afterwards may dwell in lasting bliss. All of Anglo-Saxon poetry is about this. It is about the passingness of life. And in the end, I kind of think, am I an outsider? Am I an insider? It doesn't really matter, because you shouldn't... As, as a Catholic, I, don't judge myself, I shouldn't judge myself by whether the world thinks I have a legitimate voice or not, where I belong or not, because in the end, I don't belong on the earth. And the only thing that matters, that I should judge myself, whether I'm inside or outside, is the cross. And that's what James Nugent did. He didn't think about whether this is going to go down well, me helping all these refugees. It is actually what Dr. Henry Duncan did. He just knew this was a beautiful thing that should be witnessed. And so that is where... I think I'm running out of time, aren't I? So I will end with the dream of the rude and say, of course I'm an outsider because I don't belong in this world. I have another home somewhere else. Thanks very much, Frank. Uh, now, uh, you know, the, the reason we're being speedy with the speech is to give more space for discussion afterwards, so it won't be that last word from Frank at all. We know we're outsiders in Guardian culture, if not British culture, uh, but Blue Peter is to the Guardian a kind of religion, I suppose. So uh, Sugar, over to you for your ten minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you for the introduction, Connor. Um, my name is Sugra, Sugra Ahmed, and I work at the Wolf Institute in Cambridge. I am also chair of an organisation called the Islamic Society of Britain. Um, I am going to talk to you for a few minutes um, about British Muslims, the demographics, so we get a sense of who we're talking about here, what, what we're discussing. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the insider outsider phenomenon that is drawn up in the question. So because we're short on time, I'm not going to stand here and ask how many Muslims do you think there are in Britain? Instead, I'm going to tell you that there are 2.79 million Muslims uh, living across Britain today. That's less than 5% of the British population. Um, Most Muslims historically uh, hail from the Indian subcontinent, Pakistan, Bangladesh, places like that. And although the the mix of Muslims is extremely diverse, uh, they come from different parts of the world and, importantly, from right here within the UK itself. When we think about the migration of Muslim communities into Britain, often we think about the 1950s, the 1960s, where we saw... um, the initial stages of economic migration come from the subcontinent. I won't go into the details as to why that occurred. Those of you who are interested can easily look that up. But essentially, legislative changes in the 1960s meant that uh, many Pakistani 
uh, Indian and Bangladeshi Muslims who were first generation uh, had to make a choice and call their families over. And so that's when we saw significant proportions of uh, uh, British Muslims now, but once hailing from the Indian subcontinent. Today, we're around fourth and fifth generation in that population. And so we're talking about, when we talk about young British Muslims, we're talking about people who are clearly born and raised in Britain, but also know nothing else. Know Britain only as their home and are very much at ease with that. Um, I guess there's also been a long-standing history of British Muslims in this country long before the 1950s. So if you think about um, uh, some of the pictures and uh, artifacts that are available, it gives you a very strong impression of a very early, possibly convert community, we think, that was here in the British Isles. Um, and things like the Ballycotton Cross, uh, the King Offer coins, are strong indications of engagement with Muslim societies, if not uh, Islam, right here in Britain. Um, with... With the current population of British Muslims, or around half of them are born and raised in the UK, as I said. Um, but the scene has become much more complex recently. Over the last five to ten years, with migration into the UK, migration out of the UK, um, the British Muslim scene has become much more diverse. But something really interesting when I was looking into this, this subject in, in my early days, uh, something that I found really fascinating is that we now have more Muslims living as minorities across the world than ever before. So if we think about, if we think about British, we, if we think about Muslim communities globally, more Muslims actually lived in majority contexts until things like globalization took effect. And now most Muslims actually live in a minority context, which means that when, when, we're, when we're having internal conversations within the British Muslim communities, for example, we're talking about time and place and context that hasn't really been taken into consideration when, um, when we're trying to grapple with and understand the place of Muslims in this world. So if you're living in a majority context, actually the way you understand and you see the world is very, very different to when you're in a minority context. And so it's really, really interesting over the last 60, 70 years to see particularly um, Western Muslims, so European, American, Canadian, and so on, try to sort of grow up with um, a very different understanding of their faith and their place than their parents and their grandparents. Now, there are lots of different challenges that any community faces. And, and when we talk about British Muslims, there are both internal community challenges and external. The internal are things like uh, equality, um, gender dynamics, community leadership, and something called minority fiqh, minority jurisprudence. And so this, this is really important for me. I think this is something that's going to be quite telling in the future. Already we are seeing um, leading British Muslims, scholarly British Muslims, trying to understand minority context jurisprudence. So, you know, when, when we have a, a situation in, let's say, for example, Malaysia, there's one way of dealing with that situation. But actually, if we have a similar scenario right here in Britain, do we deal with that in exactly the same way? Or is it, is it important to think about the time, the context, the place that we're in and use that as part of our uh, understanding in how to deal with that scenario? Um, the external challenges are things like educational underachievement. This is a, quite a significant problem in the, in the Bush Muslim community. Although at the same time, for those... British Muslims who are at university, almost half of them are women, 43%. Uh, but when it comes to secondary school uh, educational achievement, 
Pakistani and Bangladeshi boys don't do especially well. There's, this, is, this disproportionately affects the Muslim community because it has a very high youth population. Over half of British Muslims, 54%, are aged under 19, well, 19 and under. So any kind of uh, policies, any kind of issues that impact on young people particularly then are uh, exaggerated within the Muslim community. Now, when we talk about insiders and outsiders, well, I did a, a small project that Connor mentioned earlier, Generation 1.0. This project a few years ago basically recorded the f stories of first-generation Muslims who migrated to the UK um, and were the first in their family to migrate. That was really important. So they came on their own. And when I went all around the country talking to people from all the way from Scotland down to London, uh, you don't hear that generation complain. But I was trying to get to the meat of how they felt when they first came to these shores, when they first realized how cold it was, and when they first realized that actually they're all by themselves. How did they deal with that? How did they feel about that? And they had often nothing but praise for the fact that they were warmly welcomed by their neighbors. Uh, so, for example, if they worked in a corner shop, I know it's a very typical scenario, but if they worked in a corner shop, they were treated well by the customers and so on. And so they, they underplayed a lot of the, what we know as racism and prejudice that existed during that time. And their memories are really important because they're indicative of something. They're telling us something. Um, but what are the indicators for being on the inside? Is it food? Is it the fact that we eat the same food or similar foods? Drink? Clothing? Is it language? Is it generational settlement? So is it the fact that, you know, generation after generation, people look and sound and feel much more settled? Is it identity? So is it something like the Tebbit test? Which cricket team would you support if England and one other were playing? Which is... A, um, a really interesting question right now with the cricket. Um, or is it identity? However, we might understand that. And survey after survey, both in Britain and across Europe, has told us time and time again that British, German, well, British Muslims especially, compared to their European counterparts, identify with Britain far more than any other group in this country which I find fascinating because I don't necessarily hear that in the public sort of discourse of British Muslims. So, excuse me. So whatever it is that makes you an insider or an outsider, when a community has gone through generational shifts, so from first to fifth, fifth generation now, a community has taken ownership of its, if, of its space, has taken rights but also honored its responsibilities and um, when they for me a really strong indication of of uh, being on the inside or the outside is when communities start to mark celebrate speak publicly not only about achievements but also about their culture uh, arts music and they speak about those things in a very confident sort of with a very confident voice that gives you an indication that this community is rooted in Britain. It has, it has long and deep roots in Britain and that it feels very confident about that and very proud, proud of that. Some examples that I'd like to share of that presence, if you like. The first is something called the Living Islam Festival. I don't know how many people here have 
come across the Living Islam Festival. It's something that's been taking place for the last uh, 11 years or so. Uh, it takes place every couple of years, and it's basically a huge festival like any other British festival. It takes place in, in a showground in Lincolnshire. Uh, is run by the Islamic Society of Britain and basically draws together thousands and thousands of British Muslims from across the country who come as families and, believe it or not, live in a tent, camp for a very long weekend. Sometimes it's wet because it's Britain. Sometimes it's not so wet. Um, but whatever the weather conditions, they, they have fun, they learn, their kids run around, they, they, it's a, there's music, it's fest a festival like any other festival. And it's a celebration of being British Muslims. Another example is um, an Eid celebration that has started in recent years in Trafalgar Square. Again, I don't know how many people have actually come across this or attended. We're, we're in the heart of London, so I imagine some people will have come across this. Um, but Trafalgar Square uh, for Eid is, is absolutely packed, heaving with British Muslims celebrating and marking uh, Eid every year. And it's, it's, again, it's a very public way of saying that we are happy, we are proud, we are confident, and we want you to join in our celebrations in this very public space, in this shared space. And finally, on, on this, I just want to talk about another sign of confidence, and that is when a community starts to give back, as it were. And all of us at some stage in our life will think about what we can give back to society because society sort of um, invested in us. Well, when it comes to issues around poverty, homelessness, and other very desperate situations that have only, um, only worsened over the last few years, there are charities and uh, projects like Made in Europe who, that deals with climate change specifically, Eat and Meat, which deals with homelessness and uh, refugee and asylum seekers specifically. And these are all people who have got together as volunteers often to make a positive comp contribution to the complicated fabric of our, of our society. So these vibrant cultures are no, long, no longer South Asian. They are no longer Arab, Middle Eastern, etc., as they may have been for the first generation. Instead, they are British and belong right here in Britain. In fact, they don't fit anywhere else in the world. So if you took... British Muslims and a, a group of British Muslims that have a heritage in, in India and took them to India, it would be an alien concept for them, etc., etc. So I, can, I know my time is up. There's lots of time for questions. Um, so I look forward to talking with you more then. Thank you. Uh, and, of course, there is the reception afterwards where our guests will also be present for a little while at least. Uh, Ruth. Right. Um, below that. Um, okay. Can you hear me? Cause, um, yeah. Is that better? Yeah. Um, so when I got this invitation from Connor, um, a very engaging email was sent um, that kind of drew us all in, and I partly wondered if it was a joke um, because I thought, well, you know, a Catholic, a Muslim, and a Jew all going to a lecture theatre. <laughs> um, actually, now I'm here, it doesn't seem funny. At all. Um, and then uh, the realisation that somehow I might have been asked to represent, you know, the Jew. And I don't in any way sort of feel that I can stand here and um, speak for Jews or Judaism either. Um, so I'm speaking from my own perspective, um, which is secular, really. Interested, 
but somewhat disconnected from Jewishness. And I'm also speaking as um, an academic um, who's worked on, on these matters. So um, I work on literary studies. So my interest is in the kind of stories and representation. So I don't get out much. I sort of read and think about things. Um, and what I've done over the last few years um, is I did write a book about British Jewish writing. And the experience of writing that book was um, quite revealing for me because it was obvious that, in a way, that the project somehow kind of stemmed from me really trying to work out something about myself. They, they usually do these projects. Um, and my own relationship to my Jewishness. So my own feeling of being somehow kind of both inside and outside of Jewishness and simultaneously both outside and inside of Britishness. So like many others, I'm on my demographic, my route here is very typical. So I was born into a British Jewish family um, with grandparents from Russia, Poland, those regions. And it's a very typical story of the immigrant settlement of Jews from the east end of London to outer London suburbs, in my case, um, Ilford in Essex. And now I find myself, I work in at the university in Winchester, which is a very different environment, a cathedral city in southern England, very different. And I actually, because none of us that actually work at the university can afford to live in Winchester, <laughs> I live miles away in Dorset. And again, it's an incredibly different environment to the one that I grew up in. It really is. It's, um, it fascinates me. It's a novelty every day. I've lived there for 13, 14 years, but... It's, you know, it's sheep, it's rolling hills, it's, it really is kind of WI markets and, um, and local families that have roots that are really deeply embedded in that Dorset soil. And so there's a church at the end of my road and you go to that churchyard and you see names of families that have been there for generations. Um, my children went to the C of E school at the end of the road by the church. So this is all a long way from the world of my grandparents, um, people who were very integrated into this country but always made a distinction between what they called the English and us, the Jews, as if somehow you couldn't be both. Um, and so, so what I'm seeing now in my kind of thinking of my observations and my work is that there are increasingly more diverse ways of connecting to Jewishness. Um, some of it's religious, um, but I can't really speak for that because this isn't sort of the world that I know particularly well. Um, so a lot of it's about culture, about identity, about belonging and not belonging. And when I was working on my book, two things in particular came out of that research. Um, I was mostly looking at fiction, contemporary fiction from 1990 onwards, and some memoirs and journalism too. And the two things I noticed, firstly was that there was a shift. There was a shift from the preoccupying concerns of different generations of British Jews. So to just vastly oversimplify, bluntly, you might say that Jews of my parents' and grandparents' generation were often very anxious about how to be British, how to fit in. And now what I'm seeing in more recent writing by younger generations of Jews is a different emphasis, a different anxiety, and the anxiety now is sometimes about how to be Jewish, 
It's not about how to be British. It's how to connect with a sense of heritage. And connected to that, there's a kind of romance associated with not belonging that comes up in a lot of this writing and reflection. A kind of nostalgia for what sometimes seems like a a more meaningful connection to um, otherness, for want of a better word. So in some of this writing, um, you could get a feel that actually sometimes assimilation can be a bit bland, a bit boring. And I also found that in the end, many British Jewish writers today, well, the kinds that I was reading, because obviously it's a self-selecting process, were interested in, funny enough, just what I was interested in when I started. So that's what I found. Um, Provisional, multiple, overlapping kind of identities. And British Jewishness has always been, you know, as the term goes, hyphenated. Um, And now it seems like a lot more. The possibilities are diffuse and diverse. Jonathan Miller once um, um, described himself as Jewish, with the hyphen in the middle. And ever since he said that, he's been asked to explain it. So he never really has, but others have taken on that mantle. Um, and he also added to that that he might as well say he was British, because neither identity contained him. They were both as kind of meaningful and meaningless. So I've, I've kind of run with that quite a lot. And I've got a chapter that goes into the Jewish ish ish ishness, and so it goes on. Um, And this isn't to deny that there are, of course, real differences, real difficulties and anxieties amongst some British Jews, many. Um, A lot of concerns about diminishing identities as Jews increasingly um, kind of intermarry, form reconfigured sort of families. Um, And there's an anxiety that an increasingly diluted form of Jewishness um, might just become eventually a homeopathic trace of identity. And there will be nothing left, nothing distinct. There's a lot of anxiety in certain quarters of Anglo-Jewish public speaking about diminishing numbers. It's less than 300,000 now. Um, And, of course, it's a very complex history of attitudes towards Jews um, in this country. There is a history of anti-Semitism. It's a particularly sort of subtle, um, understated often anti-Semitism. The famous quote from Conor Cruz O'Brien about anti-Semitism was that it's a light sleeper. So it can, it can wake suddenly from time to time. And it's a really complex issue, and I know, I don't know if I'm out of time. No, or, you're not out of oh, time. Right. You've got a whole oh, I might two finish. and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes, right. But you can give them up if you want. No, no, I, I just feel that I can't stand here and sort of not acknowledge that um, the situation in Israel-Palestine clearly affects Um, how Jews um, are treated in this country and has caused much concern, debates and divisions, you know, within the Anglo-Jewish population and beyond. So I can't ignore that. So are Catholics, Jews and Muslims still outsiders? I mean, I think for for Jews, in any case, the answer really is no and yes. Um, When I finished my book, I have to say that I felt rather optimistic I think that's just the nature of that sort of project, you know, kind of euphoria to end it. But it did seem to me at the end that in contemporary Britain, Jewishness was just one difference amongst many. And that's not to say that all differences are equal or equivalent. I mean, this evening testifies to that already. But 
there was something that's you know continuously evolving about Jewishness um, in in lots of ways, and that's where I was left with the book and the work that I'd done. And there was just to end anecdotally, there was a family occasion, and I certainly don't want to sort of stand here and glorify my own family, but I remember just looking round, and I saw all sorts of complex identities, affiliations within this family gathering, believers, non-believers, practicing, non-practicing, Hindus, Christians, converts, gay couples with children of mixed heritage. And I thought, I thought, yeah, all this kind of reading about it, writing, thinking about it, here it is, there is something enduring about this kind of Jewishness. It's a Jewishness in process, um, and it's enduring because it's adaptable, it's flexible, it's fluid. And in that way, it seems very British. Very nice. Very nice way to end there. I'm sure I won't be alone in observing how much uh, connectivity there is between our three, as it were, community outside. It's very interesting how some common themes emerged. Now, uh, what we're going to do now, as I said earlier on, is uh, slightly unusual, and we're going to give our students five minutes to speak to us. We need to be extremely appreciative of their uh, bravery in uh, stepping into the breach, and as they walk up, I'll introduce them. The first off to kick off is Rob. Rob. Uh, yeah, why not? Go on. Why not? I was going to, uh, I was going to do the mastermind thing and say who he is as he walks up. His name is Rob Slynn. He's doing a master's here at Tennessee, uh, International Development and Humanitarian Emergency. I could get you all to try and guess which religion it is that he broadly shadows, but I think that'd be a bit mean, a bit unfair. Uh, he's, in fact, coming from Roman Catholic faith, and mm -hmm. he's going to echo, uh, provide his thoughts on what he's been hearing. Rob, five minutes. Okay, thank you very much, Professor Connor, and uh, thank you all for giving me the opportunity to speak. Uh, similarly to Dr. Ruth, I feel I have to start off by saying... A big task to represent, you know, over a billion people, or in this case, uh, quite a few million uh, British Catholics as well. Um, a group, uh, British Catholics anyway, that uh, sometimes I have huge differences with as well. You know, vast multitude of views within that. Um, what can I offer then to this question, though? Well, I can offer an individual, a young person growing up in the Brit British society what I experienced, some of the easy parts of growing up as a Catholic here and some of the more difficult parts, the things that made me feel slightly more of an outsider. Um, by no means, in my humble opinion, I feel Catholics are uh, huge outsiders here. Uh, certainly when you consider some of the more pressures and difficulties that some other religious groups have in British society... Uh, I feel Catholics are part of Britain. I love my history. Um, whilst Catholics are sometimes portrayed as the baddies in British uh, history, um, certainly Catholics are intertwined with so many key British events. And in that sense, I would argue that they're not outsiders. They're a key part of the British story. Um, but in certain respects, growing up, I did feel a bit of an outsider. There were tensions often felt uncomfortable. In childhood, certainly being a Catholic wasn't a cool thing. Certainly many of the uh, teachings of the church are uh, criticised uh, or seem to be too strict to young people. I learnt 
from an early age to try and keep my faith to myself and to not be so open about introducing myself as a Catholic. In my adult life, I still feel to a certain extent that I face judgment when I mention that I'm a Catholic. I'm very easily pigeonholed. Uh, I think people just judge straight away, if you're a Catholic, one must hold certain views. Um, Again, as I say, despite the Catholic Church being such a broad church, a huge group of people. Um, My first job, I worked at an NGO, and it was an NGO that was uh, focusing on things like fair trade, on uh, uh, environmental rights. Uh, Whenever talking about issues like HIV, AIDS, about LGBT rights, uh, these would obviously be things which my colleagues would be anticipating that I would say something that they could latch onto and argue with me about. Uh, Certainly, I felt that uh, people felt it was inconsistent that I should work for such an organisation despite being Catholic. My friends, my friends would say, Rob's a Catholic, but he's okay. And I think that (laughs) sums up a lot of people's views on this. Um, An undergraduate perspective, when I was at university, um, I almost felt a bit of an outsider with the Christian community as well. Um, In my uh, undergraduate days, the Christian Union in my university was very active and vocal. Many of the Christian Union supporters were pretty anti-Catholic, and certainly in their vocabulary, they wouldn't describe Catholics as Christian. That's another interesting dynamic, growing up as a Catholic here. Um, I had the privilege of spending some time working overseas, and this was really interesting for me to contrast my experience in Britain with working in a developing country, in this case, Mongolia. Um, Certainly, people's questions about faith, they'd be surprised if you had no faith, not that you had one. And this was a huge interesting change for me to come back to Britain with. And in that sense, yes, maybe having a faith, maybe being a Catholic, does make you slightly an outsider, certainly compared to some other countries. Um, But equally, I saw in the case of Mongolia, Catholicism was an exciting young religion, (laughs) new, a challenge to Buddhism, whereas often, certainly in my youth, Buddhism was the cool, interesting religion. So um, that, was, that was equally something interesting to reflect on. The uh, final thing I just wanted to say about my experiences, as a postgraduate here at the LSE, and I'll choose my words carefully, but even here in this fantastic institution, in seminar discussions, people can make great generalizations about Catholics and Catholicism. And in that sense... Again, it does feel like you're a bit of an outsider. You're being judged and that people are not taking the time to truly understand what you're about. Um, In conclusion, I'd just like to say, I think it's an interesting paradox. British people, I feel, they feel they know a lot about Catholicism and so feel more comfortable to criticise it than some other faiths. They're less guarded with their comments. In many ways, I would argue that that's proof that we are insiders in some ways because they feel that they 
know enough about it, that they're not scared to criticise. I'll leave that as a question for further discussion. Maybe some of you agree or disagree with that. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Rob. Thank you very much, Rob. Second of our three, and then into the general discussion. Obai Afifi, uh, undergraduate, uh, second year of government and economics here at LSC, government and economics. And he's going to reflect on uh, the question from a Muslim perspective. Thank you, Professor. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Obai. Um, I am the president of the Islamic Society here. Um, so listening to what some of the other speakers said, I thought I'd offer um, an insight from a student perspective as to uh, life at university and hopefully try to give some insight into the question of whether or not we are outsiders um, so I'd like to pick up on something Sugro said, um, and that's about the generational shifts. So uh, it's particularly relevant with regards to students because it shows the dynamics uh, of the minority treatment across different generations. So uh, at universities in particular, uh, Muslim students, I wouldn't say they're not only insiders, but they're an integral part of the fabric that makes up the communities in all of the universities across the UK. Um, so they do lots of amazing work, be it within their own communities or outside of that. Um, and our Islamic society, thankfully last year we actually won Society of the Year, um, without gloating too much. Yeah, look at um, you, stop <laughs> um, and there is a reason for that. Uh, Muslims uh, in Britain, we have, uh, and at universities in particular, we have an amazing ability to mobilize uh, and to campaign. And there's a very strong sense of cohesion uh, within our societies. Um, the result of that, I believe, is that um, we're not isolated, as some people like to believe. We don't always keep ourselves to ourselves. Uh, we interact with people of other races, faiths. Um, we campaign, and we're very active members of the society uh, that we're a part of, the wider society. Uh, and we do, being Brits, being Muslims, we want to benefit, we want to work to you know, improve the society that we live and work in. There is, however, uh, an alternative side uh, to this narrative. Uh, there is, in the current climate, a political current uh, that, from the outside at least, uh, is making some Muslim students, or a large number of Muslim students, begin to feel like they're outsiders. Um, so, without, you know, obviously there is a growing Islamophobic climate. Um, so, because of that, many feel uh, that they're under scrutiny and they're constantly questioned about their identity, uh, about their faith, about their allegiance. Um, and a lot of the scrutiny is not necessarily based uh, in direct discrimination or uh, malice, but a lot of it can be in fear. Um, and that's where it's particularly uh, concerning for us because fear. It's a natural human response. So for other people to fear it just because of who we are can make you feel a little bit uh, isolated or you know, like an outsider, per se. Um, and this sort of culminated in uh, what most university students will be aware of in the PREVENT strategy or the counter-terrorism uh, laws that were passed um, after recent events. Um, so 
I'm sure most of you are aware, universities and institutions now have a legal duty to look out for uh, signs of radicalization within their attendees. Um, and whilst the LSE has been uh, particularly minimalist in its interpretation of these, uh, these laws, uh, the premise of monitoring your students or uh, being suspicious of them just because of their faith uh, is particularly pro problematic. Uh, and there are wider repercussions in terms of uh, intellectual freedoms as students. So many students now, I'm a government student, uh, in many of our classes we'll be discussing contentious topics um, and current affairs. And um, some students can be scared to say what they really feel. They can be scared to uh, discuss the topic in, in depth or give their real opinion for fear of being on the radar or you know, monitored by their teacher. They don't want to say something wrong. And that is problematic because if there's one thing that I've learned sort of living and growing up in Britain is that um, you need to cultivate knowledge and you need to go out and um, seek to be an active member of your society. And that, that involves challenging the status quo and that involves questioning authority. Uh, and that, for me, is a, a British value, if, you know, to use an ambiguous term in the current climate. So, overall, um, I'd say on a wider scale, uh, Britain is becoming more tolerant uh, because we, we, we now have a, a wave of educated uh, second, third, fourth generation immigrants that are born and raised in this country. And they're very active citizens as Muslims, and they're very much insiders. If you ask them, they'd say they were, they were British. They know nothing else, just like Sugro said. Um, but you also can't ignore the growing suspicion and uh, demonization of Muslims, especially students. Um, and these have quite far-reaching consequences uh, in terms of our cohesion and our trust of each other as Brits in this society. Thank you very much. Uh, very powerful, Obai. Thank you very much. I, I, I probably should say we've seen nothing yet. There's plans for a government extremism bill, which will be landed on us without consultation any time between now and February, which will escalate what you've been talking about and expect that to be what preoccupies us, advocates of free, free speech and so on in the coming months. Uh, lastly, uh, five minutes of uh, opportunity. Uh, Gabby, Gabby Steuer, I'm very pleased to welcome a law student, law and anthropology, I'm a law prof, second year, and Gabby is going to reflect on the perspective from a kind of Jewish. Uh, I'm a bit nervous about that, Ruth, having said that it's not entirely a Jewish perspective. Jewish-ish okay, perspective. No problem. Um, Gabby, so five minutes. I'm Thank you. Um, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I'm going to be speaking from a slightly different perspective from Ruth. Um, I've been brought up as an Orthodox Jew. Um, I'm observant and I come from a very kind of Jewish part of Northwest London, so I'm very much involved in the community. Um, so when asked to speak about whether as a Jewish student I felt as an outsider in society, my initial response was, you know, absolutely not. Um, I've always felt proud of being British. You know, I love tea and scones, celebrated all the royal weddings, feel very kind of like happy to fly the British flag in every sense. Um, yet, at the same time, the title of the talk didn't really kind of confound me, nor did I find it surprising that such questions were being asked. I remember one of my earliest confrontations with the issue of Jewish identity. Um, it took place on a Saturday afternoon lunch with my grandma. So my brother, 
was discussing how an argument had, ta had taken place um, between him and some friends at the Sunday Football League, between his team and an another team. So he was in a fully Jewish team playing against a secular team, and they'd gotten into some kind of argument, not physical, just kind of bad words being thrown about. And when my grandma heard this story, um, she was very angered by it, and she didn't hold back her opinion. She said, that's not right, we're guests in this country. Um, similar, I guess, to what Ruth's grandma had, had said as well. Um, and this had in turn provoked a very frustrated response from, my, from the other members of my family. Um, we said, we're not guests in this country, we were born in England, we were raised here. Um, and my grandma herself, even though her family had... Um, Come, they'd been refugees and they'd come from the war. She herself had been born and raised in Hendon, northwest London. Um, so, you know, perhaps that wasn't on the idea of an outsider can be seen as something, um, an understanding limited to the older generation, something that um, maybe young people now, someone like me, I feel potentially more British than my grandparents may do. Um, but arriving at university, um, I did feel that my Jewish identity was quizzed further. So I've been raised as Orthodox Jewish, and I do believe wholeheartedly um, in many of the values that the Torah teaches. If I, tri but if I chose to, um, I could don no overt signs of my religion. I need not cover my head um, with a kippah, as the Torah asks of Orthodox males. And my family um, had encouraged me to interpret modesty in the way I saw fit. Um, so when it came to dress sense, there was nothing that really kind of marked me out and made me look different from other people. Um, so keeping kosher, observing the Sabbath, and the way I would interact um, with other people would kind of dictate the extent to which um, I would let my religion kind of shape my identity, and it very much became how much I wanted to engage myself, um, and I felt it was a very personal choice. Uh, speaking to friends at university, um, for some I was the first Jewish person they'd met, which was a bit weird. Um, here at the LSE, um, I must say that I've never felt as an outsider, um, and the diverse mix of people that we have from all across the world really just makes me think that there isn't kind of a standard person and that everyone comes from across the world with their own story and their own background. So here, I guess, I've never felt on the outside. Um, but I will say that I am very much aware of the limitations of my experience. Um, London itself has a hugely... Kind of, it has a hugely diverse population, similar to the LSE, um, and, of course, it also has the largest Jewish population in the UK is also in London. Um, so perhaps had I been the only Jew in the village somewhere in the countryside, I would be standing here saying something very different. Um, yet, even here in London, it's true that I have experienced anti-Semitism um, from the more unfortunate extreme events of hearing friends assaulted because they were walking down the street wearing a Star of David or a kippah. Um, or even just to a milder form, walking with my brother to synagogue one day and someone shouts out, pancake head, things like that, that aren't necessary, that just make you feel a bit uncomfortable. Um, so do I feel like an outsider? For me, I'm going to put the answer as no, um, but I will nonetheless posit that I'm glad that this question is being asked, and I do think it's an important one. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gabby. That was... Uh I must say, it's very nice to hear that remark about LSC. Uh, I think uh, we're delighted to see Father Jim here, the Anglican chaplain's here, and he may want to add to this, but he led, a, he led an event in, in Israel, which is many Jewish homes, and we have three times as many Jewish students here, I think, than the university average, so pretty good, pretty good. Uh, we have got, because of the discipline of our fantastic speakers, and a fantastically disciplined student bunch as well, we have some time. We have about 20 
five minutes or so. We're not going to keep you here after 8 o'clock, and Ed will want to say a few words just before 8 from Wolf. So in deference to our speakers and those around you, uh, I think you should be trying to be as succinct as you can be. Uh, and despite the religious theme, do not give in to the temptation to sermonize. So we might take, we might take two or three in a row uh, and see uh, how many we can have. There are uh, stewards dressed in provocatively socialist LSE red, <laughs> and uh, uh, they will come to you if you catch my eye. And you will say who you are, hopefully, and also whether you are LSE, and you will ask your succinct question. Do we have any volunteers to set a, an excellent good practice? We have this gentleman here, we have that gentleman. We take this gentleman first at the back, and then we have this. Now, I'm not going to take three men in a row. I'm going to be totally explicit in my search for variety. We've got a lady here. So we go one, two, three, and then we will come back to you, sir, on the next wave, okay? Sir. A quick question. My name's Matthew. I used to be an Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and I became an Anglo-Saxon Catholic about 18 years ago. And this taught me the discipline of us all being children of God. The Catholic Church has clear understanding about um, deep appreciation of the Jewish and Muslim faiths. So the question is, which you prefer, multiculturalism or the society? Thank you, Matthew. Uh, so that's aimed at all three, not any particular speaker. Thank you. Uh, Madam, in the, in the front row here. Um, I'm Fahia Osman. I'm from... Sorry, what's your first name? Fahia. Fahia. Um, I'm a sixth former from Harris Girls East Dulwich. And my question is, do you make a distinction between culturally religious and practicing religious? Because it seems to me that most of the outsider feeling stems from being a practicing religious person and not a culturally religious person. Uh, thank you for here. Very interesting one. See, you always get a stern examination at LSE, folks. <laughs> and uh, finally, in this way, this gentleman. Yeah, <clears throat> my name's Tim Amor, and, um, but I'm not Jewish, Muslim, or Catholic. I'm a Quaker, which is very British-English religious grouping. But we spent the last 350 years on and off, I think, pushing ourselves to the margins of society. And I think very often, for, for, from my perspective, for good reasons. People talk a lot about British values, British values, but it isn't an awful lot, if you come from a faith's perspective, that you need to actually question the values of this society. That sometimes there's an awful need for resistance to an awful lot of what's happening and what's taken for granted within, British, within our societies. So, right. Okay, so sometimes you should be an outsider, I detect yeah. in that. Uh, in whatever order you wish. So, would you want to? You're looking at me. Uh, yeah, um, deliberately. Can people hear this? Do we want to Can get these right up? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Go for it. Um, so, I thought I thought Fahir's question was quite interesting, and maybe I should repeat or paraphrase it. Um, you, you didn't mention a specific faith or a specific religion, but the question was something like, um, do you think culture or um, literal translations or literal understandings of religion, which of the two are better for society or thereabouts? Is that okay? She's nodding. Um, so for me, that's a really interesting question because if we think about, um, if we think about faith on, in a global context, there are some parts of the world where religion and culture meet 
and you actually can't see the distinction between the two of them. And so your religion becomes part of your day-to-day -day life, even if you don't consider yourself a practicing person. So the Indian subcontinent is a really good example of that. Many people who are first-generation Muslims of Britain uh, here, without really a theological or any kind of an education for, 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 for most of them, find it very complicated to understand where culture stops and religion begins and vice versa. But in Britain, and perhaps in other parts of the world too, we're seeing a new phenomenon. And I think mainly since post 9-11, for me anyway, for, for my memory, um, we are seeing more and more young people especially trying to grapple with, well, actually, what is it that my faith says about violence, about jihad, about rights and responsibilities, about being a good citizen, about where my loyalties lie? All of these questions are sort of circling, circling in their minds because that's what we're putting at, to them. And that's what we're forcing them to think about. Questions around identity, loyalty, belonging, and so on. And so I think, in my own experience too, and lots and lots of people that I know, and I, I've written a couple of reports about young British Muslims, um, more and more people are being forced to consider these questions, even though they grow up in Muslim households, don't have really a very thorough understanding of what Islam means, but are being then pushed by society to find out what it says about these issues, because they simply don't know. Yet what they're seeing in the, in the public discourse and, and maybe even in mainstream media doesn't quite make sense to them. It doesn't quite tally with the friends and the family that they have that belong to that faith tradition, and they try and grapple with, actually, what does my faith say? So when we're talking about a literal, trans, uh, a literal translation, we could be talking about something as extreme as ISIL and, and, and young British Muslims going out there because they would say that they're interpreting their faith literally. But actually, are they? And it's a much longer debate, and I know I don't have the time to do that. But when it comes to um, valuing culture, I know that my theology, I know Islam in the Quran and through Hadith especially, values diversity and encourages, British, uh, encourages Muslims particularly that when they move to a society, when they move to a nation that is different to what they've already experienced, to embrace that culture. Within the confines of Islam, so for example, you know, drinking alcohol is still not permitted. Eating pork is still not permitted. But actually becoming part of that society in every other way is, is something that's encouraged. Okay. Good. I'll, I'll stop you there, Sugar, because oh, we want to bring repeat sure. colleagues in, and we want to get a bunch of rounds in. So, I mean, there's a couple of issues lingering, and by all means, come back to this. But, uh, Frank, stick him on first, well, if I'd you don't mind. Like to, yeah. I mean, this is very vague, but I'd like to link your question with the Quaker question, in a yeah, way. Yeah, very good, very good. That, um, that, I, 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 my, if I look at the sort of generations of my family going back, then that, that religion was, had carried a huge cultural baggage and, and carried with it yeah, yeah, obviously a great sincerity of religion and practice and faith, but also great wheels of nostalgia and a yearning for another country that wasn't a spiritual other country but was a specific country and its songs and, its, and all that stuff. And as... As a child of those generations, I see my faith has de decoupled itself from that. Over generations, it's decoupled itself and become an indigenous thing that I, English Catholicism now feels very different from Irish Catholicism. Even though I was brought up in, in an area where Catholicism and Irishness were almost identical, now if I go to Ireland, I feel very, yeah, that's a very different kind of Catholicism. And the, this has grown, you know, it's, it's, it's mixed with... British soil and, and the education system that I referred to, and as it sort of decoupled itself from its cultural baggage, hopefully has become exactly what you said, 
of course, all faiths should be dissidents. I think, one, you know, whatever we all think theologically, I think all the faiths have a, a, a value in humanity that predator capitalism doesn't have, and we all find ourselves to one side of, of that. And, of, I mean, every faith should be dissident from the mainstream of, of our... And when, it, when faiths aren't dissident, when they become part... Of, when they get too close to power, we know that very bad things happen. Uh, whether those are Christian faiths or Muslim faiths or whatever... If, if a, whenever a faith gets too close to the levers of power, bad stuff happens. It's not, so it should always be a dissident voice. I'm going to stop you there, Frank. We have Matthew still in the back story here with his first question, Ruth. Uh, but your comments um, on all three, certainly. Okay. Um, yeah, so the first, um, well, maybe I'll start with the last. And, and work very quickly back, because <laughs> um, the first like, one might be out of your remit, really, and Matthew yeah, may have to pick it, it up in reception yeah. afterwards. Um, so um, the thing about sort of whatever faith having a sort of commitment really to, to be a different voice and to kind of have potentially a dissident role. I think, yes, and this is something that um, I think is actually very associated with Jewishness as a kind of cultural tradition, um, to be kind of quite involved with a kind of discourse of outsiderness as well as being actually very inside sometimes, the absolute fabric of uh, the system. There's both... And what I've noted um, in, in a lot of kind of recent writing and journalism too is, is what I said really. There's a kind of desire to sort of be on the margins and stay on the margins actually, to not want to just be kind of absorbed into something, um, some, something that's more conventional. Um, with the cultural and the kind of faith Thing. I think I'd agree with Frank that I've seen a sort of decoupling. So older generations, it was kind of part of the fabric and texture of their everyday life and a kind of sense of almost like casual, a casual attitude actually towards their religious practice, that I've seen that change um, in all sorts of ways. And so um, I, I'm one of three sisters, and one of my sisters has become very orthodox. And so I've seen that sort of her acquiring things that weren't um, explicit when we were brought up. And that's very interesting, and I have a lot of respect for that. So there are all differences even within a family. Um, the, first, the first question, I can't quite remember how you framed it, I'm afraid. Um, it was about multiculturalism, wasn't it? Yeah, but we won't... Uh, thank you very much for resisting the opportunity to say it all again. <laughs> multiculturalism versus society... Uh, and I, I'm, I'm going to invite you to deal with this in a sentence. You'll be able to come to the reception afterwards. I'll tell you where it is. You can buttonhole them because they've avoided you, sir. Ruth, you can avoid them if you want. Uh, I suppose it just raises lots of questions. Oh, very I don't good. Know okay, quite very what good. What you mean by yeah. multiculturalism uh, <clears throat> I'm, 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 Thank you for addressing it, and sir, we'll come back to it in the reception. I think I've got one person who's caught my eye with great determination here. I'm looking for this gentleman. I've got three men. What is happening here? This patriarchy is taking over. We need, we need a broader range. Do we have any women who would like to speak? You have priority to catch my eye. You've almost got a moral obligation to catch my eye. Does the editor of the tablet want to catch my eye? Tweeting away. Uh, we'll take you, sir. Who are the two of the gentlemen? There's this chap here, the son of one of the speakers. So this better not be about how marvelous that speaker was, or I'll expose you as a charlatan. And this gentleman here. <laughs> yeah, when is this going to end, Dad? Uh, right, you, sir. Uh, thank you for such a wonderful talk. What's your name? Uh, my name's Get Your Share on Twitter. Thank you. 
Uh, Rabbi uh, Jonathan Roman made this statement a couple of weeks ago. Faith schools create a ghetto of ideology where the only exposure children have to other human faiths is through the prism of that given religious teacher. Does the panel and the student speakers here agree that the prism of education through faith schools foster another cycle of hate and isolation through today and tomorrow? Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the discipline of that question, actually, a powerful one. I know Frank wants to come in on that, having talked about faith background. Uh, name, with your full surname, please, and brief question. Uh, Aidan Cottrell Boyce. What was that again? <laughs> Cottrell Boyce. Aidan X. Um, <laughs> go, go. I thought it was quite interesting the way you all talked about uh, your sense of like outsiderness or insiderness relating to the intrinsic difference in your cultural backgrounds. I think if you look at the history of this country, uh, we have these sort of convulsions of xenophobia which creates outsiders historically, and normally they coincide with a need or an anxiety for the country to to sort of reinforce its sense of national cohesion. So you have the Barons' War, the country's falling apart, and this upsurge in anti-Semitic violence. We're, not, we're Englishmen because we're not Jews. We have the 19th century where you have anxiety about revolution in Europe, and then you have we're Englishmen, we're not Irish, we're not Catholic, and this, this sort of upsurge in anger against Irish Catholics. I wonder if you saw any of that kind of anxiety about Englishness in the demonization of Islam in the contemporary, contemporary political public sphere. We might be divvying it up, because that might go to you, Sugra. And, Frank, you'll have dealt with the first, and Ruth, you can come in on all two. Pass the microphone to this gentleman, whose hand is now going up again. A bit more aggressively, sir. Uh, move it along quickly like a rugby ball in an Irish team. <laughs> if it were the English team, it would long have fallen. <laughs> Hi there, um, thank you very much for the talk. Um, I'm Muad Dabuka, I'm a second year law student here at the LSE. Um, my question is just on interfaith dialogue, and I think Frank just touched on that very briefly, um, and how important is interfaith dialogue in... Because obviously, like, people of no faith like to see faith as quite insular thing, and people, you know, regardless of what faith they're in, can these Muslims are kind of all keep to themselves, and I'm sure, you know, obviously I can't speak from a kind of Jewish or a kind of Catholic perspective, but I think probably the same thing happens there. So just, again, kind of how how important is interfaith dialogue in kind of challenging this kind of prevalent notion that people of faith are quite insular and in kind of like also became also kind of like in a sense kind of mobilizes kind of pseudo like say kind of this political force in kind of challenging that yeah very yeah. good very good i think ruth would you mind dealing with that one interfaith dialogue and its importance and then we can assign each question and we um, move speedily but that was a great one and all three were great do you want to start us off Ruth? so the that? question being um people of faith being perceived as being insular uh, and, and the role of interfaith dialogue in trying to yeah, well, address think, that issue. Um, I mean, in a sense, that's what we're doing, isn't it, um, here? And it is just about... I, I think it's almost like just about kind of seeing difference and just being exposed to kind of different perspectives and um, something it just in that dissolves a lot of anxiety. Um, I think that certainly the history of, um, of Jewishness in this country has at times been seen as very insular, and that's a kind of, um, for all sorts of reasons. And with that comes a kind of fear that Jews can sort of, um, and other faith groups can sort of be kind of coexisting in sort of little pockets, and they might actually not be detected. So there's about something about visibility, about being seen, and what would happen if you didn't know who, um, what people believed and so on. And so those kind of questions are very, very charged. And I think linking to some of the other questions as well, which I, I, I won't answer, I won't take up the time, but there is a sort of um, 
some strong connections between the kind of the history of the ways that Jews have been treated in this country and represented and what now I'm seeing from an outside point of view um, is being experienced by Muslims today. Mm. Uh, I think that's a nice link into Sugra. I'm going to ask you to deal with Aidan's, and I just think what you just said about being a Catholic here in the 70s, an Irish Catholic in the 80s, very much that as well. The, and, and I wonder whether Muslims are now suffering that. You didn't really deal with it in your talk, and I mentioned it, and I alluded to prevent and so on, but some people think there's a kind of very aggressive attitude towards Muslims for not being properly civilised. And uh, but, I mean, you, you deal with what we heard from Aidan sure. and, and you, Aidan. these things on the periphery. And then, Frank, on faith schools, and we're back sure. to another round. Sure. Um, it's, a, it, I mean, it's clearly a complicated area, and lots of people would have very, very different opinions on this. Um, for me, it's, it's really important to sort of think about the whole of the situation and, and not necessarily um, one particular dimension. So whether we're talking about you know, a segment of the Muslim communities, a small segment that can be problematic, um, or whether we're talking about the media and the way in which it's depicted, or whether we're talking about the reaction of, of you know, Joe Public on the streets of, of Britain. A, a report by Birmingham City University that came out earlier this week gives some really graphic and quite harrowing examples of what's going on in the streets of Britain when it comes to the way in which we react when we see somebody who perhaps is wearing religious symbols looks like they, be, they may be Muslim, sometimes they get it wrong, which is, which is quite concerning, quite worrying, um, because it then leads to a reaction from those communities to, towards Muslim communities. So I think we have to look at the, the whole situation, and we can't deny the fact that there are problems, clearly there are problems within the Muslim communities, and those problems are affecting us all. Um, but we also must bear in mind the context, and that we are dealing with no matter how many people are going out to, say, for example, Syria right now, we are still dealing with, out of that 2.79 million that I spoke about earlier this evening, a, a, a drop in the ocean in terms of the number of people that are going out there. But the impact of their departure and our knowledge of that departure is affecting, the, I would say, the entire Muslim communities of this country and beyond. Uh, so it colours the way we all look at Muslims. Somebody who's dressed like this, maybe with a hijab, somebody who's dressed more conservatively, perhaps less conservatively. We all have opinions about people who look like they may be Muslims. And I think that leads to different reactions. Some people may, may feel a sense of empathy, sympathy, like I've heard this evening. Other people may feel a sense of fear, and that fear leads to hate. And, and that fear essentially comes from, I, for me, a state of ignorance. Um, what is sort of creating that ignorance, I think, is sometimes the way in which we use language publicly. And to, to have a, a, a sense of responsibility with that language, I think, would really, really help. Whether that's from policymakers, civil servants, and so on, or whether that's from uh, sort of commentators in the public domain. Um, the legislation that... Um, I think it was passed through earlier this week. Um, David Cameron spoke about treating anti-Muslim hate crime or Islamophobia the same as anti-Semitic crime. And for lots of Muslims, that would be seen as a success story. For me personally, although I can see that safeguarding minority groups, all religious groups, personally speaking, I think should be safeguarded, but it also tells me an awful lot about the society that I live in and that I love. And it tells me that actually we have a duty to govern the way we behave when we 
hear or see something that may not necessarily fit right or we know is definitely wrong. And instead of being bystanders like the Birmingham City University report told us there were bystanders on buses and trains and so on who watched people being abused, we should be the change makers. Law enforcement is important and it's an incredibly important part of our, our world, but I think what's more important than that is how people like you and I behave in, both in private and in public. And that, I think, is where, th that's where the answer lies for me. Great, thanks. And Frank, I think you're on question number one, which came strongly. And we're, going, we're not going to have enough time for another wave, so this will be the last on the platform. I'll call Ed, and then we'll be off for our drink. Um, I, I was too entranced. I was soon, yeah, too listening it. to think through. But um, I wanted to pick up on your, just a personal thing about interfaith dialogue. You mentioned Dr. Jonathan Romain, who was a massive... I worked on something with Dr. John, uh, with. Rabbi Jonathan Romain, and he was a huge influence on my prayer life, which is a kind of a strange thing for a rabbi to have such an effect on, on a Catholic's prayer life. But something he said to me completely unlocked something in me. And so that's just a very personal thing about interfaith dialogue. And so I was, I was sort of personally insulted that he said that about, uh, about uh, faith schools because I think I can see that anyone can kind of logically or rationally argue that about faith schools, but anyone who goes spends any time in faith schools knows that isn't how they've worked, that, that faith schools are there. Well, first of all, it's a sort of pointless point to make because it's as though schools were sort of... That, that those schools are kind of only there because faith communities put them there. And I talked earlier about James Nugent and how that kind of mission to the poor is what created the educational infrastructure in my city. They wouldn't be there. And that's true of the big Jewish school in my city as well, King David's. Those schools are seen as, as schools that are pastorally uh, cool, you know, it's pastorally very, very effective, but also incredibly aspirational. And the, the kind of mission was to integrate people in society. And I have kind of mixed feelings about that personally, but you couldn't possibly even begin to say that that's not been incredibly effective as a way of, uh, of bringing the communities into the, wider, into the wider mainstream of British life by taking kids from poor, marginalised backgrounds, educating them, and they become solicitors and lawyers. And they've been Catholic schools and also King David's, which is the only one that I know about, have been incredibly effective at that and have made them very desirable places to be for all kinds of different people. So that if you go to a Catholic school, you will very, find very much the minority will be practicing Catholics and that those schools are attractive to Sikhs, they're attractive to Jews, they're attractive to Muslims because they're seen as embodying a set of values that are apart from the mainstream. Mm. Mm. Uh, it's a practical sorry, thing, Frank. rather than. Yeah. Sorry. You finished? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you had your hand up. Yeah. No, he's not allowed to reply. Oh, I, okay. I've already reprimanded him for even raising his index finger. <laughs> Uh, you know about LSE. We've sponsored this because we run the IPA, and you'll be able to come back here to hear this extraordinarily important intellectual figure, Charles Taylor, on the 1st of December, the 1st of May, such issue. dialogues. The wrong one again. <laughs> the wrong one again. Uh, and also you've heard about the tablet, because I've waved it around, and I will be carrying it at the reception. Uh, but you should also hear about our other sponsors, and I'm going to invite Ed to observe uh, that, the Wolf Institute and also the Pears Foundation, Ed, and Ed has the important task of not only thanking the speakers, but announcing where the reception is. So that's a great responsibility, or you can hand it over to me. I will reveal all. Uh, and you're, you're, you're having the very last word apart from my shouting where the reception is. Oh, well, that's a great honour. Ed Kessler. I, I, uh, Charles, uh, could I shout out that there are several directors of the tablet present here who will be happy to talk about the tablet at the reception when we have a drink in our hands. 
Now, I hope you heard that piece of propaganda for the tablet. <laughs> there are many senior figures here, directors. You'll notice them by their avuncular liberal atmosphere <laughs> and uh, their carrying of the magazine like a good tablet man, as I always do. Ed, apologies right. for that. I, he's he's very rude. He's a rude man. Rude is one he's of a rude the man. gentler comments. Uh, and I, 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 um, I won't keep you from the reception and the food that's probably on offer as well, um, which reminds me of the definition of Judaism in nine words. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. Um, <laughs> but I'd just like to um, uh, say how pleased I am to be uh, associated with the LSE, the Wolf Institute, um, and, uh, um, and the Tablet, of course, um, and the Pears Foundation. Three fantastic presentations. Actually, I have to say, matched by three terrific student presentations yeah, here, as well, here, here, here. really. Here, here. But I do want to say just 30 seconds about the Wolf Institute for those of you who don't know, uh, which is an institute in Cambridge dedicated to the study of relations between Jews, Christians, and Muslims and wider society. And one of the things we're doing that will be of particular interest to Connor is two years ago we convened a commission on religion and belief in British public life, chaired by Elizabeth Butler Sloss, which will be reporting uh, in early December, just in time. Um, with recommendations on these sorts of issues, faith-based schools, for example, on education, commenting on the whole issue of the pressure on universities, uh, the prevent agenda, the CVE, the counter-violent extremism agenda as well. Um, listening to everything here, um, it did strike me that we are all insiders and outsiders. And one point that comes come out of the Commission is even our pro Protestant brothers and sisters feel equally insiders and outsiders. And perhaps the next conference you run, Connor, should be, um, you know, the British, you know, are they outsiders in British society? Uh, because that's something that we all have to grapple with. So a very big thank you on behalf of the Wolf Institute uh, to the three speakers, to Connor and to you all. Thank you.